Let's bow together as we continue on in our series. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that you give us to serve you and to love you and to follow you in obedience after all you have done for us. Some of this easily gets confused with church attendance and doing good things in church. Lord, I pray that today your word would separate that. We would be humbled before you and realize all these good things that we might have the opportunity to do, we only do because you've done so much more for us and we're just so grateful. May we be humble before you today by the passage that we're looking at. We thank you in advance for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. And at one point in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, he said these words. The heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure. Who can understand it? Now, this is not conventional human wisdom because conventional human wisdom says, ah, you know, that guy's a pretty good guy. He's got a good heart. Jeremiah is saying the worst part of him is his heart. The heart is deceitful above everything else. It is beyond cure. That is not human wisdom. This is something that God is saying through his prophet Jeremiah. And again, Jeremiah concludes, who can understand it? There isn't one of us that can understand the depths of the sinfulness of our own hearts. We deceive ourselves. We're currently in a very dark portion of Scripture. This is not a fun portion. But one of the things, and Pastor Matt said this a few weeks ago, uh, one of the things about being committed to teaching God's Word, when you teach passage by passage, you can't escape things like this. We're in the early chapters of Romans 1, uh, Romans chapter 1 and 2. It's a very dark section. Cheer up, we'll be through it soon. But the rest of the book does not make sense without this part. This is dark. There's no question about it. <clears throat> Too many human beings think humanity, well, we're, you know, we're pretty good. We can be good people. And this passage is teaching us that our hearts are very deceitful desperately wicked beyond anything that we can imagine. Paul started in Romans 1 by talking about how some human beings are living out their depravity and their actions and their thoughts, and they're taking the truth of God and suppressing it downward and exchanging it for a lie and believing whatever they want to believe. And God gives them over to live that kind of a lifestyle and says, you want to go? Go ahead and go there. See where this will take you. And the scriptures say that God's wrath builds against them. It doesn't come maybe in a day or two days or a week or a month or a year, but it will eventually come. The wrath of God comes against such people. Sometimes it's not until the next life. Romans 1 is hard to handle because it says human beings have this problem. Romans 2, it gets personal, as Dan was pointing out earlier in the service. Romans 1 is about them. Romans 2 is, wait a minute. You all got a problem, too, and the you includes me. We're in Romans 2. It's not just them. It's us. Our hearts are very deceitful, very wicked, beyond cure. Who of us can even begin to understand this? 
Last week after starting chapter 2, a friend came up to me after the service and she said, the passage makes me feel so dirty. Spot on. Excellent insight. That's exactly the point. You see, it's too easy to live a life that suppresses this truth and says, no, I'm really a pretty good person. Hopefully I can be good enough to get my own salvation even. What Romans 1 and 2 is saying, whether you're one of them in Romans 1 or one of us in Romans 2, none of us are good enough. We're continuing today in Romans chapter 2. Now we move from them, not just to us, but to the most religious people of all. The people who really look so good outwardly, they might even pride themselves in all that they do and what they believe. They pride themselves in their religion. And what Paul's saying in this part of Romans 2 is, they also have a deceitful heart. They're stifling truth in their hearts, and they're facing the wrath of God, too. I'm reading in Romans chapter 2. If you would like to open your Bible and follow along, that's great. We'll also be putting the words on the screen so you can follow along. Let me just say this about these verses so you're not confused. What Paul's doing is he has picked a very special illustration of religious people. He has selected the very chosen people of God who act religiously, the Jewish people. And they have this wonderful, wonderful covenant with God Almighty that they sealed through the process of circumcision cutting off of extra skin on the male organ. This is their connection to God. And Paul says, even these guys have a deceitful heart. And they're in trouble before God, even the Jews. I'm starting to read in verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others do not teach yourself. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? <clears throat> you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has its value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the, law require, the law's requirements, 
will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are lawbreakers. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. In this passage, Paul addresses those who are leaning on their religion to consider themselves good people, thinking that by doing this, they can get salvation. This passage is a perfect display of the misleading notion everywhere in our world that religion can save you. It cannot. We love our church here at Calvary. We love the people who come here. But coming to this church will not bring you salvation. Coming to any church will not bring you salvation any more than going into a barn makes you a horse. You are not a Christian because you do good religious works and attend church. This is what Paul is underscoring in this passage, and he uses the Jew as an illustration of it with all the religiosity. Starting in verse 17, we can't be leaning on our religion. There are those who certainly want to depend on it. It is the farthest thing from their thought that their religion can't get them to heaven. They can't imagine such a thing. Paul is arguing that if even the very chosen people of God who do their religious thing, if they need salvation from Jesus, so do the rest of us. Paul begins by saying, now you, if you call yourself a Jew. Would you please notice in this passage that we've put up here for you, the word if, if you can see the underlining of the word if. The word if is used four times. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, this is the example he's making of the Jew. If you call yourself a Jew, then the second if. If you rely on the law, that is the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments, and you brag about your relationship to God, I'm a Jew, I have the law of God. If, there's the third if, if you know his will and approve what is superior because you were instructed by the law. I have the law of God. I have superior knowledge. I'm a Jew. Fourth if, if you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, if you think you have the guiding light of God in your life simply because you're a Jew and you have the law, he goes on to say, then who teaches others? You do not teach yourself. You have that law, and you're not even teaching what the law says to yourself. You have suppressed this truth in your heart, just like Romans 1. You've exchanged the truth of God for believing a lie that your religion could do for you what it can't do for you. This is what Paul is saying. 
He's using this extreme example of the Jewish religious person. He goes on in verse 21, the last part of verse 21 and the verses after that, to talk about three specific commandments from the Old Testament. The first one is stealing. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? He's asking them to think more deeply. You know the Eighth Commandment is don't steal. But do you steal? When you work for your employer, do you give him the best work possible? Or do you dog it and not work hard? You take some of those things and work, well, I work here. You know, I just, uh, it's no big deal. Little paper, pen, whatever. You who pretend to be religious preach against those who steal more, but you yourself steal, he's saying. He goes on to a second commandment. You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Jesus was very clear on this in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying it's not just those who perform the act of adultery. If you lust after another human being in your heart, you have effectively committed adultery in your heart and mind with that person. Paul's saying to the religious person, you're against adultery. You ever lusted? You ever done it yourself and broken the same law that you so hold to? Oh, you religious people, you, you act as though you got your act together and you're better than the people of the world around you. And you chase the people from the world around you away from faith because you act so religiously. You turn them off. How often does that happen in churches? People act as though they're better than those in the community around them. Even the religious have a real problem here. That sinful heart, that nature that's deep down there that we can't even begin to understand, as Jeremiah says. Who could understand this? He goes to a third commandment. Actually, the third commandment. You're to abort idols. You're, you, you abhor idols. You say you should not have idols. Do you have idols? You might not be bowing down to some totem pole or some image of a god, but have you allowed materialism and the pleasures of this world to become your own idols and you pursued them in place of God? Paul begins to take even the most religious and show their shortcomings. He is saying the good ain't so good, the righteous ain't so righteous. And the people around such religious people of the world, they feel the judgment of the religious people. Today, the issue for most of us would not be being a Jew. But we have our religion. The Jews had the law. We have our Bibles. You ever seen a Christian clutch their Bible and hold it close? They really don't practice it and read it. They don't know it very well if truth be known. We have our religions. Some of us are Methodist, some are Presbyterian, some are Baptist, some are Roman Catholic. And we hold on to our faith as though it might bring us salvation. Paul is saying it won't. Even the most religious people have a major problem. The sin in their hearts is so deep, and it skews their thinking. 
they begin to think of themselves as better than those around them. They'll make it. Others won't, but they're good enough. They'll make it to heaven. Paul is saying not one of you, from the bad sinners to those who think they're religious, not one of you will make it unless you go God's way through Jesus. By the time we get to verse 25, Paul is moving on from religions. He's moving on to religious acts or deeds, the things that we do. And he's moving specifically here for the Jews. He's going to talk about circumcision, which was the one final card that you had to play. If nothing else, they could play their circumcision card and say, see, we got the covenant of God. This is our outward sign that we have a covenant relationship with God. So we're going to make it. And Paul says, uh-uh, you're not going to make it. In these verses, this would rock the Jews back on their heels because they're convinced that their circumcision is a sign of salvation. And Paul is saying it is not. Look at verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you will become as those who have not been circumcised. You, you might as well not be circumcised, you, you men. You act as though circumcision will save you, but you're not living God's standards. You get on the turnpike out here, the new exchange that they put in a couple years ago. You head northeast towards New York City in New Jersey. You're driving along the Jersey turnpike there, and heading up north there to the east, and you come to a sign, and it says, New York City, 35 miles. Question. As you read that sign, are you in New York City? No. It's a sign. It's announcing something that's not yet real. Paul is putting circumcision back into its proper context. It's a sign. It's a little bit like the sign that some Christians use in their faith. Oh, I was baptized, and I'm going to substitute circumcision. Oh, I take communion. Those things are only a sign. They are not our salvation. You can be baptized and still be lost. You can take communion and still be lost. No, no, I don't believe. Don't stifle the truth of what Paul's teaching in this passage. When we come to know Christ by faith and we receive salvation as a gift, then we get baptized as a sign of our salvation. Once we come to Christ by faith and we receive his free gift of salvation, then we receive communion because the communion is a sign of what we already have. Communion and baptism don't save any more than circumcision saves. This is what Paul is arguing. So in verse 26, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? It's not the sign. It's the reality of salvation. What Paul is saying is that obedient Gentile can actually be further ahead than the circumcised Jew. Verses 28 and 29. 
Paul now turns the topic of circumcision to not just circumcision of the male organ, but circumcision of the heart, cutting away of that which is sinful and dirty and useless in our hearts. He says in verse 28, a man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly has had the outward surgery, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, it's meant to be so much more. No, a, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit of God. Not by some written code. It's very possible to live a life that's religious outwardly, but there has been no change in the heart, no cutting away of the sin in the heart. There will be many religious people who are lost in eternity, Jews, professing Christians, Jesus once told a parable on this very subject. It's quite powerful as an illustration of this. Jesus referenced two fictitious men who walked into the temple to worship. <clears throat> One was a Pharisee, a very religious person. You kind of know already where this story's going. The other person was a horrible, rotten, dirty, filthy sinner. In this passage, as Jesus tells the story, he calls him a tax collector. You see, any Jew in that day knew a tax collector was a traitor. A tax collector was a Jewish person that worked for the Roman government and collected taxes for them. And then they, they added more to the tax bill to pad their own wallets. So they were stealing from their own Jewish people for the Roman nation. Jews hated tax collectors. Jesus says... Two guys walk into a temple. It's like a joke. Okay. Two guys walk into a temple. One's a Pharisee. One's a tax collector. Oh, tax collectors. Pharisees, oh, cool, religious, cool. Jesus says the Pharisee stands up and prays to God about himself. God, I thank you so much that I am not like other people, robbers, adulterers, evildoers. I thank you I'm not even like that tax collector over there. I thank you that every week I get to fast twice a week and I give my tithes to you. I thank you, God, that I'm a good man. Yuck. He just made himself to be a whole lot better than everybody else, so he thinks. But then comes the second man's prayer, the tax collector. The tax collector won't come to the front of the temple. He won't even look up. Instead, from where he is, with head bowed, he says, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And Jesus said of the two men, he's the one that went home righteous, not the Pharisee. You see, Jesus is not impressed with religious acts or claiming religion. This is about matters of the heart. Circumcision of the heart. There will be religious people that are lost. 
God tried to tell the Jewish people this in the Old Testament, and he was very clear about it. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, he said, Circumcise your hearts, not just your male organs. Circumcise your hearts, therefore. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be stubborn in your own thinking any longer. Again, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 4, verse 4, the text says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your heart, you men of Judah, and you people of Jerusalem. The outward acts of religion, circumcision, baptism, communion, church attendance, service in the church, giving. These things are not enough because the heart has not yet been circumcised. Any religious person coming to a passage like this, their whole view <clears throat> is totally shattered by what God's Word says here. If they're willing, the Word of God will cut through their suppression of truth. They're exchanging the truth for a lie and believing what they want. I'm good enough. I can get myself there. Imagine the real Jew who is a descendant of Abraham himself who's been circumcised, lost for eternity. Paul says that is very possible. Imagine the person who claims to be a Christian and receives communion and has been baptized and they are lost for eternity. When I started this series several weeks ago, I told you one of the great fears of my heart was people sitting in our churches, people sitting in Calvary week after week thinking, I'm a Christian. I'm ahead of others. I'll be there. I hope. I hope I'm good enough. Sitting here week after week, blinded, by their suppression of truth. Undoubtedly, many who think they are saved will be lost. This is one of the reasons why we say at Calvary, nobody's better than anybody else. Everybody needs a Savior. Whether you're Jew, Christian, atheist, whatever, if you come to this passage today and you say, well, I don't believe that. I believe I am good enough. I'm hoping I am. You might be angry and frustrated as can be. But God's word will cut through this if you will humble yourself before him. And you realize that your religion and your good works are not enough to save your sin-sick soul. I'll try once more in case you're still doubting this. In the Sermon on the Mount, here are the words of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, you're the one we follow, you're our master. Not, not all of them will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who follows does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, the day when he returns, Lord, Lord, did we not even prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform miracles? And I will tell them plainly, 
I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoers. Religiosity will not cut it. If you are dependent on being a good and moral person, it will not do it for you. Paul goes to great pains in the first two chapters of this book to say, whether you are a filthy, rotten sinner by the standards of the world or you're a very good person, we're all in trouble. We all suppress this truth and we want to exchange it for to believe our own lies that we can be good enough. Paul is showing us how deep and dark this hole is that we are in. The gospel of Jesus Christ has two parts to it. One part's bad news. The other part's good news. Bad news is you're in real trouble. No matter what you've done, you can't get out of this deep, dark hole. You're in trouble and you are lost. The good news is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ Christ came into this world and he suffered for your sin. He accepted God's wrath, judgment for your sin so you can be forgiven. You can't earn eternal life, but you can receive it as a gift from God Almighty. That's how much he loves you. He's made it possible whether it's the thief on the cross who has spent a life in lawless living, dying at the final moment of his life and receives Jesus. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in eternity, in paradise, you'll be there. That person can have it. But the person who is so religious must walk away from it and say, I need a Savior. In the coming chapters, as we get beyond chapter 3, we start to see how beautiful this gospel is that's been crafted for you and me. It's like a beautiful diamond, and it sparkles in the light. We've been in such darkness in these early chapters, and now the light of the gospel comes crystal clear how beautiful it is, how pure it is, how saving it is for people who are so lost. That's the early part of the book of Romans. As we get further into the book, the challenge is now live this gospel every day of your life. Live it. Bad news, we're in trouble. Good news is the way has been paved. We can experience salvation, not by what we do, but by believing Jesus took the punishment for our sin. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Today, if you are here and you've often wondered if you really know if you're a Christian or not, if you'll be with the Lord for eternity, if for some reason you thought you could be religious, good enough, whatever, maybe you've been turned off by the religious people around you that think of themselves more highly than they should. You know what, that should turn all of us off. But let's focus on the need of each of our souls right now and make sure that we are trusting Jesus alone for salvation. If you're not sure that you're there, I encourage you to fashion a little prayer in your own words. God, something like, God, I know I'm a sinner and I'm in a deep trouble here. 
but I do believe you loved me and you sent your son to be punished for my sin on that cross. I'm asking you, please forgive my sin. And he will do that right now and he will give you his beautiful gospel, his salvation of your soul, and he'll guarantee it. Thank you, our Father, for the deep, dark hole that causes us to see our need for your rich gospel, the light of the world found in Jesus. May our hearts be turned away from religious hypocrites, excuses, <laughs> religious acts, religion itself, and may our hearts simply be turned to you, seeking, trusting in you alone for salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.